welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, neighbor, Luke Davenport. Welcome to the podcast, Luke. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Luke um, lives in our ward. We've had a few guests on our ward talking about their journey. And let me just introduce Luke to you. Luke is 19 years old. He graduated from our local high school this past year, 2019. He's the oldest of three. Um, Luke is one of the finest young men I know. He's an active member of our church, but he's walking a very difficult road with his journey with emotional illness or whatever you'll help us know the exact label. Luke has been working with OCD for his entire life, ever since he was a young boy. Um, and I've kind of watched with um, admiration as Luke has walked a really difficult road that nobody really understands except Luke. He has wonderful parents that are doing their best, um, but it's just a unique journey. Luke is now at the stage where he's considering a service mission, and I deeply admire him for doing that. We talked about service missions with brother and sister Cook in episode 223, they're service mission leaders in New York, but Luke is considering becoming a service missionary. And we'll kind of end the podcast with that part of his story. Um, Luke offered a wonderful prayer before we started. One of the things that he offered in his prayer is a hope that what he says can touch someone else in their trials. And um, Luke is a gifted, bright, wonderful man walking a road that's no fault of his own. And um, very difficult to know how to navigate this and knowing exactly when this is going to end. So I hope that as Luke shares a story that you that are in tough spots with whatever's going on in your life can listen to the perspective, ideas, and thoughts of this brave 19-year-old um, man, and, and maybe it will help you. Anything that I've said that, I, that needs to be corrected? Uh, the only thing I would say is my papers are in. So. Your papers are in. Yeah, so I should be getting my call hopefully next week. And so this podcast may be released really close to the third week of January where Luke gets his call. And those of you that are hearing his call may come to this podcast to hear more of his story. Mm -hmm. These two kind of are linked together. Um, tell us, Luke, just when you became aware of OCD. Tell our listeners about that. Well, I feel like looking back on it that I've had it since I was like really little, but I first had experience with it in a traumatic ex way when I was in third grade, and I, 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 I the memories are blurred because I was young, but I they, I would have dark thoughts. That's what I would tell my mom and. She would get a call from my teacher, and I'd just be bawling at school, and my teacher would didn't know what to do. And it was a lot of nights like that of just crying and just these thoughts that I was going to do something bad to someone that I cared about or just these really things, these really big things that I did not want to be a part of. But then and shortly after, after that year, we moved to this ward, and I was diagnosed with OCD by a therapist. My mom self-diagnosed me, but... That was the clinical diagnosis. And thanks for just bravely sharing a little bit about your journey. Um, I'm sure at 19 you'd go back to your three-year-old self and and give your three-year-old self a lot of love and 
and support in those years that you really had no context for what was going on. Share with our listeners what OCD is. So OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder. And I feel there's a common misconception that it's, I need to be orderly and clean and do things of that nature, which part of it is, but there's many other aspects to the disorder. It's my therapist says that it's one disorder, but it's full of many different themes. And those themes can be contamination, OCD, or scrupulosity, which I know you've talked about on this podcast, and other types like that. And mine's fluctuated over the years, but my prevalent is contamination, and that's the biggest thing that I'm dealing with every day. And talk about that one in particular. What is that? So it's different for everyone. Some people, it's they don't want to feel dirty or contaminated because they don't want to get sick or they think they're going to die. And... I never had that luxury of knowing what mine was about. I just have never wanted to feel dirty or contaminated. And how OCD works is your brain loops a thought. And so I'll get a thought that something happened and my hands could be dirty or something like that. And then the, there's a you do, your brain wants you to do an activity to get rid of that. And sometimes they don't correlate. Most of the time with contamination, it's washing. So I wash my hands a lot and I shower. I've showered a lot at times. Sometimes I don't shower at all. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. But so you have the thought and then it creates a compulsion, which is an activity or a ritual. So if I feel my hands are dirty, then I'll wash them and they'll be okay. But then I have to do that every time I feel that my the thought comes to my head that my hands are dirty. And so you'll end up compulsing all of the time and washing your hands like my hands are almost always dry because of and the amount of scrubbing and washing and the more and more that you give into that compulsion and repeat it the more and more it strengthens strengthens the thought so the only way to heal OCD is to do the exact opposite so if I feel that I need to wash my hands even if and most of the time there are the reasons are not good like it's just a made-up thought but if i don't do that then that's the only way to get better it's called erp exposure response therapy i've heard a little bit of that as we've talked about scrupulosity it would intuitively be just the opposite Mm -hmm. just talk more about that therapy and any examples or any additional insights yes so i'm trying to think uh I'm just going to go chronologically when I started therapy because I moved here in fourth grade and then fifth and sixth grade were okay. Seventh was okay. And then eighth grade, the summer after eighth grade is when my OCD started getting very bad. No, the summer before. And I, in my ninth grade year, I was barely going to school, barely functioning, and my mom pulled me out and put me in intensive therapy down in Centerville. And it's this center called, I don't remember. But essentially, they would say, they would give me activities to do called exposures. And I would just have to, because the, the way that it works is that they're saying that the anxiety is going to come down if you just sit with it. Because the initial response is, I have the thought, do the action immediately, get rid of the anxiety but that only worsens the problem. So uh, it's like if I wanted to wash my hands, and mine has a lot of other things, they're just complicated. 
But if I want to wash my hands, just sit there and the anxiety will eventually go down until, and then you wait until it's halfway and then it'll just keep going down. And you'll still feel anxious, but they're trying to show you that you're not gonna die because OCD makes you feel like it's urgent. I Part of the way I think of OCD is that as a computer virus that just wants to, uh, dang, I'm trying to think. I can't think of my analogy. It'll come back to you, Luke. I like the idea of just the computer virus and the imagery of that as you were talking about that. I like the idea that you're sharing that sort of sitting in the anxiety, why that seems to be the most painful path because I would naturally want to do everything I can to remove anxiety from you, but sitting with the anxiety seems to be from what you're sharing the long-term road to solve this but it's painful and difficult yeah and i'm not very good at it and i'm still learning i know everything i need to do it's just the ability to do what i know i need to do because my brain is telling me to do the exact opposite and i only have one brain and so that's been the hardest thing of the whole journey is that no one understands and everyone's telling me that my thoughts are not real or they're not they're not going to harm me. An analogy that I thought of was, right, one of my therapists said, imagine that you're out hiking and you see a mountain lion. Your instinct would be to go the other way, run away, get away as fast as you can. But the way to fight OCD is to walk towards the mountain lion until you get there, and then you realize, oh, it's only a stuffed animal. It's not a real mountain lion. But it looked real from far away, and your brain is telling you that it's a real fear and that it's a real, you're in danger, and you need to get away, and you need to do these actions to get rid of that fear. But it, the way to get rid of it is to confront it and see that it's actually not that big of a deal. And you've probably seen videos and stories of people getting eaten by mountain lions. Yeah. So it's not like you, everybody else knew, it's not like it's always a stuffed animal, it's you know from a reality perspective that that's a legitimate fear. Yeah, the the anxiety and the thoughts are real thoughts, but they're based on false information. And the brain, I feel that my OCD is always trying, it's trying to make me stress so that it can fix the stress only to give me more stress. It's just always wanting to be stimulated almost that it, like I'll feel stressed and then I'll do something to get rid of the stress and then it'll give me more because it just wants me to continually get rid of that stress even though it's the one creating the anxiety. Talk about what happened in the eighth grade around there that um, caused your OCD to come back or spike or whatever vocabulary. Any thoughts on what happened? Yeah, so we we were at, um, a, we went to a summer camp out in Maine I'm not exactly sure if this is what, but I, it really spiraled after this event. And it was the last day, and I had wet the bed the night before. It's honest. And Good people wet the bed. And I woke up, and I was 13 years old, and my mom said I was horrified. And I just felt that I couldn't get clean after that. And I went and showered and did all the normal things that any normal person would do. And then a few weeks later, I just spiraled completely out of control and... I, I I wasn't touching anything. I could barely walk around the house. I, I couldn't go in my room, just things like that. And things that I was able to do the week before, I wasn't able to just suddenly. And we were like, what is this? 
Good job. I appreciate just sharing that. Talk about, because some people just say, well, go to school. What's the big deal? You know, just go to school. And the more I'm understanding, and if you had pancreatic cancer, we wouldn't say go to school. Yeah. <laughs> um, or other sort of things that we logically understand why it's not possible to go to school. Just explain to our listeners, because you're a bright young man, I sense motivated, um, just why you weren't able to go to school. Yeah, and uh, so up till that, until seventh grade, I had straight A's, like my whole life, and partly due to my OCD that I strove for perfection. But starting eighth grade to twelfth grade, I, I barely graduated high school due to it. But some people's OCD is they don't want, they feel that other things are dirty, but mine really rotates around feeling that myself is contaminated and not wanting to get other things contaminated. And I don't want to get my stuff contaminated because then if I get someone else contaminated with imaginary germs, then they're going to be contaminated and then I can't control their actions. And then essentially the whole point is that then the world is all going to become contaminated, which is not logical, but it is to my brain. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't, I would feel so dirty and I would feel that I couldn't go to school, whether I felt the school was dirty or me. And it's just so much anxiety and that I just wouldn't go. And even if I could go, sometimes I wouldn't use my hands or I felt my, my paper would get dirty so that I wouldn't turn it into the teacher. And there's also have scrupulosity. So that also made school hard, especially with testing. I remember in sometimes I would take a test and I'd feel that I had cheated. And so I purposely marked the wrong answers. So there was no way that I could possibly cheat. And I'd cover my head during the test so that I couldn't see anything. But then my brain would still convince me that I did. And so it was just all these little things. And kids wouldn't know and they would touch me and it'd be like so much anxiety. And I don't blame anyone. It's just the way that my brain works. It's fascinating for me because you have this brain that's not working right. And, but you intellectually understand it's not working right. Um, in a way, that's almost more complicated oh, yeah. than some journeys that people will be on where they're not self-aware of their own challenge. And so it just adds to me in some ways to your challenge because you're aware mm -hmm. of your challenge. Yeah, and at all times, OCD is just... My therapist says that OCD people, their minds can work so quickly because they're having to process so much information all the time. And my brain is always trying to find an escape plan or if something happens or, or if I'm out and I feel that something happens and it spikes my anxiety, my brain is automatically just flipping through a million ways on how do I get out of this and what do, what's the next step? How do I get clean? How do I feel not feel like this? Stuff like that. So it's just always... And sometimes I can relax, but usually they'll just be like, I just went snowshoeing with some friends this past week and I'm just out in the snow. A, a, a lot of mine is due with fecal matter. I don't, walking outside is really hard for me because of dog poop and such things such as that. And so, but I love being outside. I love riding my mountain bike and other things such as that. So being outside is really where I'm in my element, but it's also the hardest place for me to be. 
And so we were out and we we're having a good time. And then I see something and my brain just automatically goes crazy. And I usually go pretty quiet if I get really anxious and I'm not talking very much. And so people just, because the, the biggest thing that's hard having OCD is having it. But the second thing is that people don't know you have it and you don't feel like you can share it with people because it's so weird and they're not going to understand. And you, I don't understand. And even people in my family, like my mom, who knows like almost everything does not understand my OCD. And so it's super isolating and you're almost encapsulated in your own little bubble and you don't feel that you can really share with people who you really are and you're always putting up a front and hiding it. it and so like even on this hike I was just uh, I had a front up I was just trying to be as normal as I could trying to breathe as much as I could to just try to dilute the situation as much as I can and I actually did pretty well that day and I didn't really give in to the thoughts and Good. It sucked, but then it it also shows that the therapy works, which I hate because it's hard. Doing a good job, Luke. Thank you. To in, introduce scrupulosity to our listeners who haven't heard of that term before, listen to prior podcasts. Yeah, so OCD is just one giant disorder, but it can take many forms, and scrupulosity is one of those where a lot of the time it's based on religious subjects, but sometimes it's just honesty and things like that. And so you, you can feel that you're not worthy. You can even, you can sin and then not feel worthy, even if you've repented or you could not sin and still feel not worthy. I just got my first temple recommend for the first time in I think three or so years. And that awesome. was really hard. And I probably talked to my bishop way too much, but, um, like the way that it works and the way that OCD is so bad is it can completely manipulate your memory. So like I, scrupulosity was one of my starting things and it can pull up old memories and it can just make you feel that you did these most horrible things that you would never even think of doing. And then you're convinced that you didn't done that. And then there's nothing to disprove that because it's a memory, and so no one can go back and show you that you didn't do it. And even if they try to do that, that's only making the situation worse. And you just pretty much have to accept. You have to say that you did it. No, I'm trying to. Therapy is complicated, but you have to essentially be okay with the fact that you might have done that, even if you know that you 100% didn't. And so you just say like, yeah, I did that, I did that, I did that. And you repeat it over and over and over. And I'm really bad at this. And I tell my therapist no a lot. But that's what you're supposed to do. And so... Uh, um, <laughs> lost my train of thought, sorry. It's okay. This is why podcasts work, is we're all just having a conversation and that happens sometimes. And our listeners understand. Um you gave some pretty good examples like that test-taking version of the scrupulosity mm -hmm. where you were so concerned you were cheating, you marked the wrong answer mm -hmm. and you put your hat over yourself so you couldn't even... And then I love where you just said you your mind goes into 
the past where you're convinced you've actually done some of these things. They just, just don't become irrational thoughts, but they become your reality, and then you might confess them. Yeah. Um, I know in the Deborah McClendon podcast we did, and I just pulled that up. It's episode 191. Deborah McClendon is a therapist that has expertise and scrupulosity. She talked about um, a story of a man that just confessed to the police all these things that he didn't do. And yeah, the police okay. were smart enough to figure out that he actually didn't do these things. Otherwise, he might be in jail for things he didn't do. But his scrupulosity brought him into that was his reality. So he called the police and confessed all these things. Yeah, a big thing in scrupulosity is I've had the thought before, probably just because my therapists have told me about it, but people will feel that they've hit someone and run them over with their car and they'll go back over and over to check and they'll just still believe that they hit someone even if they go back and there's nobody. And they'll just convince themselves that they did that even if they are literally a safe driver and didn't do anything. And that's that's the wildest part about OCD is you could be living your life to a perfect standard and your brain will still convince you that you've done all these bad things or that you're dirty or whatever your topic is. And scrupulosity goes into other topics and they're not really mine, but like pedophilia OCD where you feel that you're a pedophile or just things of that topic where you feel that you've done these horrific things even if there's no way that you've ever done them. Thanks. For, um this is, I, I think more people probably have this than I realized. Since we've done the Scrupulosity podcast, people have reached out. We've gotten some messages. My wife was even in a church service assignment. Someone recognized her last name and and mentioned that he has this, and the podcast was very helpful. Another good podcast is episode 199, where Tim Chavez talked about his own scrupulosity in about the last 20 minutes of that podcast. And... um. It's pretty sobering when you realize that um, people feel things they shouldn't feel and that God would never want you to feel, but it's it's the reality of your situation, and it's very difficult um, to step out of that, and you need really good, generally really good clinical training yeah. and good people in your life to help you. Uh, talk about, I want to go back to if I'm your, if you're in ninth grade, and you've had friends that have said good things to you and friends that haven't said good things to you. Mm -hmm. um, what what advice do you have? You know, what are some of the good things that friends have said for you, maybe even in high school years at times, and some of the things that have been difficult? Well, junior high just sucks. I think that's <laughs> just a fact. <laughs> but I, I think in eighth and mostly eighth, I told a lot of my really close friends about it and an in-depth version of what I was dealing, not obviously not everything. And due to some things like that, it felt that I was no longer being invited to these events and I felt very lonely on, so I was feeling lonely because I didn't have any friends and then I also felt lonely because I was dealing with this very isolating disorder that no one understands. And your therapist can understand it to, the, to an extent and I have a benefit that my therapist has OCD whereas some therapists don't. And so you just, even if they know exactly all your thoughts and they know how to help you get better, it's just very isolating. But so I, I, I scrambled around, I had some friends and then in, I don't know if I, I don't really know when I started opening up about it. I opened up a little bit junior year and I think a little bit more senior year and just starting 
letting people know. So you kind of opened up, but that didn't go really well because people pulled away. Yeah, and then it was closed wish, off. And you would that. wish they didn't pull away. They kept asking questions and and kind of honored that you were vulnerable and kept the conversation going instead of pulling away. So you rightly sold closed down and didn't tell friends anymore. Yeah, I until just until maybe your junior and senior year. Yeah, I felt we were in junior high and kids are just not mature and. The topics that I was sharing were very personal, and so I felt really hurt. But I, and now looking back on it, I understand like that I can understand why I still don't feel justified in being ditched. But right, it I do understand that it's a really complicated, complex disorder that even I don't understand all the way. And so that's part of why I wanted to do this podcast. Just trying to break the stigma almost just because there's just such a stigma I feel around OCD that OCD and all mental illness actually that it's just people don't think it's real or people are scared of it or people just don't understand it is the gist of it and there's so much faults and just information out there that gives people the wrong idea about it whereas I'm just a person and someone with depression or bipolar is just another person and they're just living their life, but they are plagued with this thing. And if someone were to have cancer, and that's a really difficult thing, people would rally around them and help them fight and be like, we we know that you're struggling and we can help you, but someone with mental illness is going to most of the time suffer in the darkness and you're going to be solely by yourself suffering. And you don't have family, but they're still not going to understand and they're not going to know exactly what to do and how to help you. And How did talking to your friends as a junior and a senior, did, did that, was that good, bad, or mixed? And if friends did the right thing, what did they do that was helpful? Well, I think I have to go back a little bit. Good. But I, I didn't... I had some friends going into sophomore year, but I was it was my first year of high school was before they moved in ninth grade and I had so much anxiety. Some about OCD, but mostly just going to high school. I was so scared and I'm pretty short and so that was another fear of mine and but I joined the mountain bike team because this really good dude in my ward, he's since moved, but Jay Liddell asked me to and I was like, I don't wanna do that but then I did it and I went to one practice, two practices. I went with him one time and I crashed and I was like, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And then I went on the last day of the summer before school started and I met some kids and he was a year older than me and they just pretty much accepted me into their friend group and most of them were non-members and I just got to be really comfortable with them and then I did the mountain bike team the junior and senior years and it just opened up like this new friend group and I could, I grew closer to some of the friends that had done me wrong in the past, but it was just, I felt that it was better because people were a little bit more mature and I could talk about it more. And these friends I've talked with it in pretty deep and they're all understanding and they're like, yeah, like we think that you're so strong and I'm like, I don't feel like that, but thank you. And it's just, it's been a different experience sharing it now, but there's just still always this hesitation telling someone new or telling them more information. And they try to understand, and most of the time they probably can't, but they're being the best that they can be. And then I think that's the most helpful thing. 
just having someone show you empathy and try to understand your situation is a lot better than just ignoring you and thinking that you're just weird because you have a mental illness. I like some of the words you use that those friends said to you that I think you need to hear, Luke. Um, you know, we think you're really strong um, was, I think, what you said. And thanks mm -hmm. for sharing. Do you remember anything more that if I'm trying to be this friend to you, if I'm in your mountain biking club and you're after a ride opening up and short of sharing your journey, help me if I'm your friend to do the right thing. I don't think that people are going to know necessarily because like I said, most of the time, I was a pretty normal high school kid. I, I just missed a lot of school. That was really the only thing. And, But if I'm opening up to someone, just being empathetic and as understanding as someone can be is I think the most helpful part because OCD has just been this plague in my life, but I've gained a lot of empathy and just, I felt, I feel like almost this ability to not understand what other people are going through, but just feel for them and know that that's a hard thing, even though I have no grasp on it. And I feel like that's just the biggest thing that if you know someone has a mental illness or they opened up to you, just acknowledging that their pain and that they're just acknowledging that they opened up to you and just supporting them from that point on it's a good thing and I don't like to burden my friends on it and I try to act as normal as I can but they they're always like willing to talk with me about it and that's like a really good thing because you can talk to your family but it's always good to have like a second another source to talk to and like that's been really helpful like you've talked to me a lot and it's been really beneficial to my circumstances thanks for sharing some of that um do you would you trade this for cancer no. Why? I think that we're all given a, we all have a journey on this earth and that we're all supposed to, even if we don't like it or even if we don't want it, we all have things put in our way to help us grow. And if you go read a book or any movie, you're not going to find any of them without a trial in it. There's, uh, there's no movie where they're not trying to overcome something or overcome a challenge or do something. It's just a part of life, and I I would probably hate having cancer too because it sucks. But this is mine, and it's my own unique challenge and my own unique journey that I just have to figure out, and God has a path for me, and I feel part of it is going on a service mission, and he's helped me to just be able to meet people and events have happened in my life and I don't know exactly what's going to happen but this is going to be it's a prevalent part of my life and it's going to put me where I need to be in the future because God shapes all of our paths and if we let him talk give advice to parents I love your parents yeah and I know in my parenting I've had my good days and my bad days and so I'm sure you know, your parents have had their good days and bad days parenting you just like I have. Uh, but talk to parents that have children with mental illness. Just some general advice you give parents um, as as they're trying to help their children. Um, my mom and my dad are really good people. And my mom is like the best person that I know. And she uh, is not always... They're not always the nicest, and that's understandable because I'm not always not, I'm mean a lot of the time. Well, I can be because it's hard, I guess. 
but I would say the biggest thing is to if your if your kid has OCD, don't give in to their compulsions. And that's like probably the hardest thing a parent's ever gonna be asked to do. But if they are asking you to help compulse or they're asking you questions and you know they have OCD, the biggest thing to benefit them is to not answer. And it's gonna be they're probably gonna be mad and they're probably the gonna, kid's gonna be mad. Yeah. But it's the only way for them to get better. But then also on that, just showing them empathy and telling them the big thing for me is just receiving praise almost like like you did good there because these things are like every obstacle every time I do an exposure it's the hardest thing I've ever done in in a matter of speaking and just knowing that someone is trying to understand what you're going through is really helpful even if they have no comprehension of it so just saying like I'm really proud of you doing that is just like this huge morale booster because part of it, I feel it and I'm not good at it. I, I haven't had, I'm not very confident in myself, but having, when you build confidence up, it's only going to help you get stronger and be able to attack the OCD full headed, but just having that support behind you, but them also knowing that of what not to do and it's going to be hard and they're going to mess up, but just being able to help them out and help you through it in the way that you need to be helped. It's good advice. And I think uh, as parents, when we walk into parenthood, I think we sort of pre, we kind of mentally prepare for some situations perhaps with our children, like an illness or um, just, but I don't know if many parents where they become parents mentally think, what am I going to do if I have a kid with mental illness? Mm -hmm. And how am I going to parent that? We don't talk about that in church. I've never been to a training class. And so I think a lot of parents, um, it's kind of a work in progress and we yeah, make mistakes. Sure. And I love the way you're communicating. And I love, um, and I would recognize that for you parents out there that recognize you've uh, made mistakes in this space, I think you need to give yourself some grace. Um, I try to do that as a parent that often we can look back and understand how we could have handled the situation better. Um, so be patient with yourself, but I think keeping communication open and keeping the same goals together um, and just recognizing it's going to be really hard days. Yeah. Any more advice or thoughts for parents, Luke? Uh, I don't know. Our, my relationship with my parents is strained a lot just because it's such a, such a big part of my life. And then I also put it on to them which is not fair but and like my, my just like my mom and dad are not perfect but they're doing their best and just if I'm striving to do my best I just ask knowing that they're also striving to do their best is really helpful and just just having them say like I understand that you have this like it's so like when parents try to fight it it's not gonna help like just like, I understand that I have OCD, but it doesn't mean that it defines me. It does not define as who I am as a human being. It takes up hours and hours and hours of my day, but it's not me. It's not my personality. And it's taken me a long time to understand that. But if your family also understands that, that'll help you. And just, just being kind and showing empathy. But then people with the mental illness need to show it back because 
they're trying their hardest. And so it sounds like you have bad days too, and you recognize a, you a lot of them add to the burden, so to speak, of your parents. And it's there's some pretty hard days, and I think it's okay for our listeners to hear that because I think that's the reality of a lot of family situations. Is there's some really hard days in family relationships, and really complicated things come into families and. Um, but I think we'd all just want to hope that if we have the same goals to keep the family circle together and keep communication, that there's going to be better days ahead, even though it can be pretty hard at times. Your dad's one of my favorite Sunday school teachers. I love his lessons, and your mom is one of the kindest, wonderful hearts. And mm -hmm. um, Talk about, do you ever ask God why you have this? Uh, yeah, a lot. And I'm not... I'm not a. I'm not good at reading my scriptures, and I'm not. I do pray a lot. Probably, um, probably a lot of the prayers are for the wrong things. But for a long time, I've been really mad, just really mad and, at God. And I guess to a certain degree, and maybe I still am. But it it's. I've had to come to this realization that. It's not all up to God. No, it's. I'm trying to think of how to put it into words. I just had to come to a realization that it's what I've been dealt and that there's something to learn from it and to gain from it. And God knows everything. And so knowing that has been really hard for me. And it's been... <laughs> It's been a long journey, and I still believe in God, and I believe that what he's teaching is true, but it's just been really isolating and hard. And, like, a big aspect of it is all my friends are out on missions right now, and, like, I really want to serve a mission, but I'm not able to go serve a proselyting mission. And does that mean that I did something wrong, or does that mean that I'm not good enough? And... And why do I have to experience this where, and there's no ending in sight right now for me. And that's been one of the hardest things for me is I don't know, I've been dealing with this for, I think over a decade now, and I don't know when it's going to stop. And a lot of it is up to me, but it's also, I need to turn it over to God and I'm just still figuring out how to do that. It's really honest. Um, talk about being mad at God. Why, what is, are you mad at God because of this is your journey and the length of it and the fact it's not going away? Just to kind of talk more about that. I've always felt it's okay to hear people's anger because it, I think it helps them just to potentially get through it. Um, do you want me to like discuss that question yeah. I, we've talked about before? Yeah. Anywhere you're comfortable going with this. Yeah. Um, I guess it's it's just been a really long journey and it I guess just being mad at God because he created everything and so like he could have chosen not to give me this disorder or and just not cuz a lot of there's a lot of struggles and hard things for people that you read about in the scriptures but my thing is like all these prophets got to meet God and they got to talk to him and some people knew Jesus and if they chose not to believe, that was like on them. And 
I'm choosing to believe and I've never met them in this life and I don't remember them because there's a veil and so it's like like why do I have to experience this and why if I try to live my life good and do everything that I can for almost my whole life why do I have to do this and why does it have to be so hard and why why couldn't I have something else why couldn't I why can't I be doing what I want in life and because like I have a lot of things that I want to do and accomplish in my life and right now I'm not able to and I'm stuck and that's the biggest thing is just I feel trapped and I I feel really lonely and that's I and God like I can't see God and so that's really I guess hard to put into words I think you're doing a good job and when, I've shared this before on the podcast, but when I was first a YSA bishop and I came across YSAs that were angry, it kind of jarred me, <laughs> angry at God. I mm -hmm. thought, well, I think my first reaction is you should never be angry at God. And then I learned to sort of hear those stories and recognize that anger is a secondary emotion to pain. And there's real pain behind everything you said, Luke. There's a lot of pain there. And this is where I get really tender heart of you, and you didn't do anything to cause this. This is what I'd call trials that come into our life that are out of our control and not the result of anything we've done. And those are the hardest. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you started to drink alcohol and became an alcoholic and then led to all these decisions, say, well, that started with a bad choice. This didn't start with a bad choice. You didn't try being OCD and then became, got OCD like yeah. an alcoholic. or, And so it's just a completely different category where you didn't do anything wrong here. And so it would be logical then to... Um, talk about stories or even read scripture stories or talks where things are lifted and things end. And when you say, I don't know when this can end, my heart just goes out to you. Because even if you had a type of cancer, you could look at the typical, you know, outcomes and yeah. how many radiation treatments you needed to go through. And especially if it was a curable cancer, you'd kind of know the road you need to take and you go, this really is painful and all those treatments would be really painful, but you'd kind of see a light at the end of the tunnel. But here there's just this tunnel and there may not be a light at the end of the tunnel. I think there's a level of hope as you're sharing, but it's a very difficult road. Yeah, and not to be morbid or anything, but some people die from cancer and that's really sad and it's really hard, but you're you're done with the suffering. Right. There's no, I'm not going to die from this. It's not, and I don't, I don't want to die, but there's, there's almost no end to the tunnel right now. And sometimes there's a little bit of light, but sometimes it just goes away. But there's just, there's no end and there's really no beginning. And so I just don't know. I'm just cruising down that tunnel, not knowing when I'm going to come out. So I think honoring your anger is, a principle of ministering that perhaps honoring your anger and giving you permission to feel the way you feel helps you have less anger. Mm -hmm. um, you asked me a really good question a couple months ago, um, and I thought it was a very thoughtful question. I didn't think it was a disrespectful question. You asked, well, even Christ who suffered everything, in some way when he went into that suffering, he knew from a time perspective when that suffering would end. And even though we can't comprehend what he went through, and you didn't say anything to minimize this experience, you recognize that you don't have that as part of your journey. 
Is that a fair assess? Is that a fair recap of your question? Yeah, it's just like God and Jesus endured all the sins, but He knew after three days, and He knew God, and He knew that He was going to be resurrected. I don't know when I'm going to be done, and that's really scary, and it makes me pretty frustrated, and sometimes mad. I just, cause I, I just want to get on with. I'm 19 years old and I have things that I want to be doing and I want to go see the world and grow up and but I'm just being stuck because I have a, a brain disorder. And so when you first shared that to me, I think my reaction would be to uh, maybe give you a simple added answer to that. A platitude is something that's a simple answer that kind of mm -hmm. keeps me emotionally safe and but it doesn't fully address the complicated journey you're in. And and so when you talked about that, I've thought about that a lot. And there's no, I don't have a good answer for that. I think if I came up with an answer, it might minimize your pain, except to validate the complexity of your situation and to point you to God and Christ like you're already doing. And maybe hope that it's someday you will give me the answer to that question mm -hmm. versus so. me coming up with the answer and and maybe you will someday. Um, it's a great question, and it, it's an insight to me and your wonderful mind and the depth of your soul and the searching that you've gone through to try to understand really complex things at a very young age. You know, I, I realize you're 19 years old, and there's not many, I don't want to be critical of you that are 19 out there, but in some ways you've been stretched and refined in a way that's really unusual for a 19-year-old, and you have a level of maturity and and intellectual skills and compassion skills that are way beyond your years uh, because of your journey. Um, any Anywhere else you want? I've got some more questions for you, but is there anywhere you want to go right now with the podcast or things you want to share? Um, I'm Not that I can think of. Um, talk about, uh, you talked about these two types of missions. Um, the Cooks in episode 223 that we just released talked about service missions and teaching missions. Um, that's the vocabulary the church is trying to use. And they spend a lot of time talking about how both missions are equally needed, equally important, equally in the size of in the eyes of God, but culturally not equal. Yeah. Um, and sort of one's clearly held in more esteem than the other. And you've talked about how you'd love to serve a teaching mission. Why would you love to serve a teaching mission? Um, I, Ever since I was a little kid, you were taught in the church that like, you go on a mission. And I, and I always wanted to. And I remember talking with Ben when we were in junior high. We just couldn't wait to go on missions. And for our listeners, Ben's our son that's on a mission. That's yeah. Luke's age. And so it's just always been that dream of mine. And then I, I like interacting with people and I like helping people and before my heart has I felt that I've been hardened by this and I'm trying to soften my heart but I do want to bring people to Christ and help them know what I know and just be out there in a new environment living on my own teaching people and helping and I just want to do that for my whole life and I my patriarchal blessing says something about missions and so it's just always been this huge thing in my life but there's also been the mental illness, and so it's just always been this unknown of will I serve, will I serve. And it's just been this just a long road of wanting to serve but not being able to serve and 
the capacity that I want, if that makes sense. Makes sense. And everything you said about your reasons for serving, um, those were all or mostly about other people. It gives me an insight into your good heart and your good desires. Um, I want to come back, talk about, do you ever just say, well, I'm going to quit believing in God because it's so painful at times to believe in God, this that I'm sometimes angry with and sometimes has let me down. Do you ever go down that road and, or do you've always been able to maintain your belief in God? Um, I think there's definitely been times where it's been hard. I don't know that I've never not believed in God, but there's been, I would say the more prevalent thing is that I don't believe that he knows me. It's, that's probably more where, cause it, I just don't, I don't understand a lot of things, but I just don't think I've just always believed in God and it's always been a part of me. And so I just, and I've seen him in my life. And so I don't think that I've ever not believed in God. Just it, it's felt, it still feels right now, but it feels really, I, I don't feel that I know how to communicate with him. And one thing with OCD is that OCD and especially scrupulosity, it can get in the way of the spirit. And you don't, because people tell stories about how they have a prompting to turn around and they turn around and something bad happened, but because they listened, they were fine. I don't really know what the Holy Ghost is in my brain because I have so many thoughts and I can think something, but it could just be OCD and it could be the spirit. And most of the time it is just OCD. And I've kind of learned how to decipher them not really the thoughts, but I know when I feel the spirit versus when I don't. So that's been a hard aspect of it, just knowing when God is actually talking to me and knowing if God is ever talking to me. So just learning like that aspect of it has been probably harder. I don't I just don't think that I've never not believed in God. I've 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 had trouble with some of the things that he's done, but not that he doesn't exist. I admire that because I think in some ways you could just say, well, my relation with God's complicated. That's my term, not your term. I don't understand why I'm on this harder road. All my high school friends are on missions. Most of them are. And I have been dealt this set of cards. And so some would, I can see from a logical standpoint, you could just say, well, I'm closing that door. Um, it just feels a little painful for me at times. But I admire your spiritual maturity and your thoughtfulness to say, no, I'm not going to close that door, even though there's been, it's unset, I don't know what word to use, and just keeping that door open. And then mm -hmm. that being sort of a complicated relationship at times because you don't know which of these promptings. Um, I just think, I think of Nephi in the Book of Mormon sometimes where he talks about the Valley of Sorrow and these, or other church leaders that just talk about times about just, you know, I, it's just sometimes it's hard to always feel like God's there. Mm -hmm. And then if we feel that way, we conclude something is wrong with us. But it's just part of mortality at times for some of us. And so I admire you hanging there with your relationship with God. Um, talk about, we've had some early release missionaries come home in our area. Mm -hmm. And um, I've noticed that you particularly are helpful to them. <laughs> Um, and they've reached out to you. Talk about, without any specifics, just why yeah. you're able to go where they need a friend to go. Yeah, I've had some close friends and some people come home from missions. And 
I don't know what that's like at all, but that's hard in uh, mul- multiple ways. But I just feel that like, and some of them have come home because of mental illness, and I'm and I'm like, oh wow, I've been doing that for ever, forever. So, <laughs> so I just I I've just I just try my hardest to be as understanding of them as I can, and to try to say like. Like, you're not alone. Like, this is, like, because it's very lonely, and I assume coming home you feel really disgraced almost and, like, you're not worthy and things like that. But I am I just try to be as helpful as I can and be and just say, like, like, it's okay. Like, you didn't do anything wrong. Lots of people do this. Like, I do it, and I share some of my story, and I try to help them as much as I can just so that they don't feel quite as alone or like they did something wrong because I feel like a lot of the culture of the church is oh what did they do why are they home whereas some of them didn't do anything and they just weren't able to do it because their brain wouldn't shut up and let them do what they were supposed to do and part of it is probably and I've seen it firsthand God needed that's their plan and God didn't need them to stay out as long and he didn't, maybe he needed them to have this trial to fulfill some other type of calling in this life. And just because you didn't serve a mission doesn't make you any less of a person. Um, I've noticed that um, I would just sense they can go where you need them to go. They can talk about the things that they need to talk to that some of their other friends may not be able to. And you're probably too humble to say, yeah, that's true. So I'll say that for you is I've noticed one of your gifts is if I'm in a bad spot and I need someone to talk to, and it might even be suicidal, I know I can talk to Luke um, because I just somehow know Luke can handle this discussion and he can go there and he may not have all the answers, but he's safe for me to talk to and I need someone to talk to now. And... um, I just sense that's part of your ministry, Luke, mm-hmm. and it's part of, I'm looking for my wounded healer quote that our listeners have heard. I reshuffled my papers, but it's this idea that, you know, you know a wounded healer is someone that can authentically lead someone out of the desert because he or she knows that desert, and you know the desert of mental illness. You may not know every mm-hmm. um, quarter of that desert, but you know enough of that desert to have real conversations with people that in that desert and to help give them hope. And so I would hope that your older selves, as we, uh, you will have more of those experiences in your life and it will give you a measure of, of satisfaction that, you know, this is really a painful road I'm on, but I just recognized I helped someone that probably no one else really could help. It's a private ministry. You, it's not very public, but it's unique and incredibly healing to other people. Any more thoughts on that topic? Uh, I just feel that everyone has their own journey and everyone's dealing with something and we just need to be kind to everyone and they don't need to feel alone. I mean, there's no possible way that I'm going to be able to understand what they're going through. I can maybe understand a small facet of it, but just, at least in my experience, having someone like kind of understands that's similar to you, that knows some of the pains that you've been through is really helpful and just just letting someone know that they have worth even though they don't feel it. And I'm 
really bad at helping myself. But I've found that if that means that I can help others, that's a really good thing. And so I just try to do help them if and a lot of it is promptings. Like I've felt promptings to go talk to someone even if I wasn't as close to them when they left on their mission or things and then it's I've become really good friends with some of these kids that have come home. And I love that. And I think that's a sign God loves you and that he's there, that he's working, that you're worthy. Um, and that even your scrupulosity may think you're not worthy, that you are worthy and that he's giving you impressions to go help people. And then you see people helped. And then I think you can say, yeah, that God is there. He loves me and I'm working um, he's working through me to bless other people's lives. I did find my wounded healer quote. We'll see how close I did. A minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. And I like that quote. I did have a listener gently suggest to me that you can still be a wounded, you can still be a healer for other people if you don't know that desert. So don't, you know, if someone's in a desert and they open up to you and you go, well, I've never been in that desert, I think you can still help them. But yeah. I think people like you, Luke, are uniquely qualified to lead people out because you understand that. Um, talk about, you know, so now you graduated from high school um, a year ago this spring, and a lot of your buddies are out on missions, and you're thinking, I just walk our listeners through your decision to consider a service mission. Yeah, so I'm, all my friends were getting their calls like the end of the school year, and it was I was happy for them, but it was really rough on me, and I felt pretty bad because I just wanted to go. And then they all left, and it's just I've been in this weird lingo phase. I, I did a semester at Slick, and I finished that in December, but I just haven't really felt like I belong anywhere. And I think that the Lord has been preparing this path for me, and I just got a prompting that I should go. I don't even remember why, and it was really hard. And I remember emailing some of my friends, and they're like, "Like that's that's a real mission, Luke. Like I need you to know that." And even Good. if they didn't know a lot of mine, and that was really helpful. Like especially Ben helped me a lot to come to that decision to Good. go on my mission. And we got my mom, just all these events kept happening. You can call them coincidences, but they definitely weren't. And we got in contact with some, with the people over the service mission. And and so we talked to them and I just felt good about it. And then just a lot of time went by and I was like, just didn't know if I wanted to go. And I was feeling, because a lot of it is, there's just such a, an aspect of it, of that it's not the same and people look down on you and, because I feel like I'm mostly a normal kid, but I just have this mental illness and most people don't know that. So me going on a service mission, they're like, oh, why is he not going out? People kept asking, are you going on a mission? And I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to go in a year, but I just never really knew. And so once I got that, and my dad said something really profound and he said, you're called where you're supposed to go. And I never thought about that because I was choosing to serve a service mission. And so maybe God knew that I would have this and he knew that I could be able to help someone and so he said he called me to go on a service mission in Utah because there are people there's people that need help here just like there are people that in need of help in Samoa and Africa and Asia and everywhere around the world and it's just the same even though we have a huge 
population of the church. There's still people in need, and so that really got to me. And, and so then the end of 2019, I was like, okay. And so I was talking to my bishop and started getting the process done. And and I'm, I'm still frustrated by the whole process that I can't go and that I not able to do exactly what I want, but I'm hoping that I can help someone else. But a lot of it is I hope that I can help myself by helping other people because I've just been, I haven't been able, I've tried every type of medication, everything to get better and nothing's really shown any difference. So hopefully this way prepared by the Lord can give me some uh, healing and that I can also help others. And one of the things as we've been talking before this podcast is when you sign up for a service mission and now you're and receive a call, um, you're trying to figure out exactly what you're going to do. And some of those um, fit some, and it's been a little bumpy at this point in the story to know mm-hmm. exactly what type of service mission. I, share with our listeners ideally what you'd love to do in your service mission. Um. So... I really like being around people and talking to people, and I feel like that's what you do in a proselyting mission. And so I didn't know if I could do something like that here, and there's not really any options open like that. And a lot of the options are just, they feel, they're all service-oriented and they're all helping the church, but they feel like you're almost on the back burner and you're not out helping. Like, none of them are really out helping people. And so... I'm still going and I'm going with a positive attitude as positive as I can be because I want to go and I feel that it's what I need to do. I just think there's other options that we could potentially in the future have for people that aren't able to go on a teaching mission but don't necessarily but necessarily still want to go and help teach because I, I feel like I could really help people if I was able to teach but because there's no options open right now, I'm not able to go. And I can go on splits I can go, not splits, I can go out with like missionaries in the Salt Lake Mission, but it just doesn't feel like that's my mission, if that makes sense. It's good. And I recognize you have these great gifts of of the ability to help individual people. And so there's a side of me that would love everybody's gifts, whether they're on a teaching mission or service mission, to be matched with people that can be most benefited from those gifts. And I recognize that right now, in your story, it feels like there's a gap there. The service missions, your, the actual applications of a service mission don't quite meet what you'd love to be doing. And I yeah. hope that that maybe even our listeners will have ideas or that doors will be opened where you can take your gifts the way you're helping other people and have that be part of a service mission. Uh, talk about just your have people from our state gone on a service mission? I know the answer to this, but are are you one of many, or are you the first one you've ever heard of? Uh, I'm sure there's others that I haven't known about, but I only know of one, and he had autism. And so there's not many people that are, I would say, high-functioning with, high functioning with a mental disorder that I know that have gone. So I really think that I'm really one of the first to go. Because I don't, none of my friends are like, oh, I'm going on a service mission or anyone that I know. And so I hope that part of, part of the reason that I want to go is to help break that stigma of, hey, I'm going, I'm normal, I just deal with this. And it's different than what other people deal with. And there, everyone has challenges, but this is mine. And I'm going to do what I can with my circumstances 
So I'm just hoping to bring attention to that aspect of it, that maybe if someone doesn't want to go on a mission because of that aspect, that they can be, oh, I can go on a service mission, or people that have never thought about going on a mission will go, or just that they'll see that everyone is different and everyone has a different plan, and I'm going because this is my plan right now, and I have been dealt this, but I'm going to do this so that I can serve the Lord. How cool is that? A bunch of our listeners want to come through wherever they're listening and give you a big hug. Cause what a great reason to want to go on a mission. And uh, I like to use the term heroic around you sometimes, Luke, because I think you're a trailblazer. It's incredibly heroic to say, okay, this is who I am. A teaching mission is not on the table for me right now, but I'm going to go chart this path that nobody and I know of in our stake has ever charted before partly because you want to help others, but partly because you want to be an example for people that come behind you that says, oh, Luke Davenport, Elder Davenport did that, and look at what he did, and he's a stand-up guy that I really admire. And so I want to follow his example, and I think that's the goal of the church. Everything I've read about service missions, the cooks, what they shared on episode 223 particularly were helpful for me. and to just see we're in the early stages of where I think the church wants to be with service missions. And I think some of you that are maybe listening that are on service missions or have served service missions, um, and Luke, um, just very helpful for where I think we need to go. The Cooks talked about how early release missionaries sometimes would then choose to serve a service mission. Um, They just really wanted to communicate these are equal missions in the sight of God, both needed. And we should look at them culturally as the same. Even though you would come to church in our ward, mm-hmm. the, the cooks talked about we should always call you Elder Davenport. Um, you'll wear a name badge to church. We should just, even though you're, we haven't said, and tell us, would you have a farewell in your ward? Yeah, I'm going to have a farewell. And part of it, part of going has just been really, I've had anxiety outside of the OCD just about people and like, doing things like just exposing myself and saying I have this mental illness is like really challenging and really scary, but I also feel that it needs to be done because, and maybe that it might help someone else to feel not so alone. And I also feel that it's a lot of relief off of me to be able to just do this and say like, this is, this is me, this is who I am. And it's a big aspect of my life. It doesn't define me, but it still is a part of my journey. But yeah, I'm going to have a farewell. I don't know if I'll have a mission call opening. I've been debating. It's not going to be really exciting like most mission call openings. But I'm just treating this as as a normal mission, even though I'm frustrated that I'm not able to go on a teaching mission. This is a mission, and I'm going to go serve, and I'm going to just be... I'm going to be a missionary. That's the biggest thing that I hope people can take away there's no difference and even i there's a stigma in me it's like i don't feel that it's the same but i'm trying to hopefully make it for other people that they don't that they feel that it's the exact same thing and that god god doesn't see any different that's great and i hope everybody that goes to a farewell of a service missionary looks at that experience as the same as someone going on a teaching mission. And even though we'd see that missionary the next week in the ward wearing a name badge, and in your case we'll call you Elder Davenport, we look at what you're doing as equal to 
the young man or young woman who got on a plane after their service mission and left, because in the eyes of God, as you shared, it's the same. And I think when, and that people, I've always felt like part of our earthly mission is to reach people that no one else can reach. And as I've given return missionaries blessings, I've consistently felt the theme that they reached the people that they were supposed to reach. And it was part of a um, a pre-mortal plan. And so I believe that you will reach people and do things for people um, that no one else can do. And I think that's already happening with the people you're reaching now and your voice on the podcast will reach a lot more people. Talk about, you've got wonderful priesthood leaders, our local bishop and stake president. Anything comes to mind that, that they've said that's been helpful to you? And I know you just love them and they're great, but oh, I yeah, just wonder the if best. there's any nuggets that they've said that that are helpful that you would share that if there's other priesthood leaders listening. Um, They've just been really supportive of the whole way and they're, they act excited for me. And they're like, we're so glad you're doing this. And the process is the exact same as any other mission. And so you do the interviews, you fill out the papers, and then they send you a call. And so they've just been treating it normal and I haven't felt like different at all. And they've just been really good at, I would say hyping it up and just making me feel like I'm wanted and needed in this capacity. I assume, do you know who sets you apart? I think it's the, it's the stake president. I think it's the stake president too. And um, Sister Cook on the earlier podcast encouraged, I think we'll do this in our ward, is to have your name listed on the back of our program with all the other missionaries serving in a plaque. Yeah, and I, I think, I don't know how it works, but I think I can get a, a church email and I'm going to do weekly emails and things like that. And That's cool. Treat it as normal. Do you have a favorite scripture for your plaque? Because I think that's a tradition in our ward. Yeah, my favorite scripture is Philippians 4.13. And I'm sure a lot of people know it, but it's, uh, crap, I know it. <laughs> that's funny. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And it's just been, I've not always believed it. Like at times I have trouble knowing that it's true, but I, I know deep down that it's true and that with the Savior, we can do anything. And so that is, I don't know, I just really like the message in it. Love that. Any other thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I guess the biggest thing is just, I just want to get rid of the stigma. Like, I'm just a normal person. I have OCD, and I suffer every day, but it doesn't change how anyone should perceive me. And I and anyone else suffering with depression or bipolar or any other type of, I'm sure there's a lot that I even don't know about, but just people need to, it needs to just become a normal thing in society that people have that and that it's normal and it's accepted and just that people need to understand that everyone has something going on and so just always be kind. Do you th wish we talked about this stuff more often? Yeah, and I think it's starting to be more like that, but it's also really hard for people with it to share. It's You really are encapsulated in your own mind, and no one knows what that feels like, and sharing it, is, it may sometimes feel as scary as the thoughts that it's giving you. So I hope that people can start to see that 
it's more normal and we just talk about it more and more so that it's just it just becomes a norm a social norm to have mental illness just like it's a norm to have cancer i agree with that and this is a good podcast for that platform uh, for our listeners, as I visited with Luke and have had some real strong per- spiritual impressions about Luke, I just want you listeners to know that I think, I just feel Luke was um, one of these most valiant men from the pre-mortal existence that was somebody I look up to and um, someone many of us looked up to. And I just feel like sometimes those most valiant pre-mortal spirits agree to take on um, a much more difficult road because in the end it refines them more than a, a less difficult world road would refine them and their ability to help others is increased. So I, I don't know if that's everybody's story. I don't know how that works, but at times and with Luke in particular and others, I felt those that have some of the hardest roads and the darkest times and the tunnels with very little or no light are some of um, Heavenly Father's finest children. And um, I love what Luke is. Luke, to me, he d- probably doesn't like me giving him these words. He's going to cringe. But really brave is one of the biggest words I'd give Luke. It's just brave and courageous and heroic to be alive, to be talking about this, to be vulnerable, to reach F, and to be a safe place for friends. And now walking in the fog of a service mission that compared to a teaching mission, it's much more known, it's much more structured. You get a call, you get on a plane, there's this organization ready to go to just kind of take you in, you have a trainer. But this is just, there's a lot more gray in this road or fog. And I just admire you living with all the ambiguity and fog that you're living with and keeping faith in God and the atonement and doing the best you can in your family and bravely moving forward. I do believe that, I share this thought a lot, that if I could sometimes give have people come back with their older selves <laughs> um, and kind of talk to their younger selves, that they would be full of hope and talk about um, beautiful chapters that have unfolded that are only possible because of the unique road you walk. So Elder Davenport, soon to be, um, thank you my friend and neighbor for being on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler.